actions antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you selling for less. Today, I'd like to have with you a more specific discussion around the topic of mindset. Most of my interviews are about people who pursue their own paths, go after their passions, and hoping that by being inspired by those stories, you would kind of adopt more of the mindset that I I can, I will, I should, I am going to be the one to pursue the path that I really want to. Today, my guest, Matthew Brownstein, is someone who actually focuses on helping people adopt the right mindset. He is the CEO and founder of the Anaha Education Group. Matthew, welcome to the program. Nice. Thanks for having me here, Stephen. This podcast is all about mindset, and you've spent a, a lot of your life studying the human mind and how we can go about adapting the right mindset. Yep. My whole thing is mindset. That's why I felt we'd be a good fit. My background is meditation, spirituality, philosophy, hypnotherapy, neurolinguistic programming. Yet all of those modalities just point to the mind and how important the mind is in helping us to live our very best lives. Now, when it comes to those different modalities that you're talking about, whether it be your spiritual background, your philosophical background, meditation, mindfulness, broader practice around it, or even the neuro-linguistic programming or essentially how we're talking to ourselves, do these all go in tandems or do you tend to adapt it more along the lines of which one is going to resonate with this specific person? Maybe someone's a more spiritual person, another person's more into the intellectual philosophy, maybe another person's more into how you train your mind. Yeah, I think they all go in tandem the way that a plumber would walk in with every tool, or at least in the truck, there's every tool, but you have to cater whether so even for myself, it's not like every time I go into meditation or do hypnosis, I'm using all of those modalities. But generally, the work I do is client centered. So I would just say, what are your goals? Or where are you blocked? Like, where's the issue? Where's the goal? And then we just pick the best modalities to help to move towards that. And being client-centered work, I will often present the modalities that I think would be best. I'm like, well, we could use hypnotic programming for this. Maybe we could do hypnotic regression for this. Maybe you just need to learn some self-help techniques. Once I present what I think could be the best options, I love it when the other person, whether it's a client or whomever, actually picks the modality. And then they're that much more empowered to realize it's their journey, not me. I'm just the facilitator. I see. And so does it often happen that your client will then either try something and have to iterate, say, okay, this didn't work as well for me. Maybe I should try another modality, or maybe if it's self-talk, I need to just change up the words I'm saying to myself. Does it oftentimes happen where the first thing you come up with based on the client's personality situation, specific blockages is the one that works? I think over the years of experience, usually the first modality chosen is the one that's going to work. I've been doing this for over 25 years now. However, we work in NLP with the model that there is no failure, only feedback, and another model called TOTE that's is acronym for test, operate, test, exit. So I can mm. test, say, okay, how you doing? Well, from one to 10, I'm at a nine, you know, pretty bad. Okay, let's do operate, let's do some technique to help make that better. And then we test again. And okay, that number went down to, let's say, a five, but we're not down to a zero yet. So then we operate again, we use another technique. So with this test, operate, test, exit model, and the idea that no failure, only feedback, we just keep applying different techniques until we get you to your goals. Uh, And again, you can't fail if you're coming from that perspective. That also takes into account the idea that sometimes in one part of your journey, when you're first beginning, you need one thing, but then as you 
grow and progress, you get to another stage. And maybe at that stage, you need to address something else and you need a completely different modality to address that. Yeah. Like in a longer term client relationship, you're going to pull from any tool in your bag of tricks. We'll come often come in for some issue and then realize how much we can help them with. Um, then next thing you know, they're talking about all these other issues. And if you have enough training, then there are usually plenty of modalities. A current client of mine has leukemia, and we actually, working with this physician, have normalized the blood levels. The blood report, oh, wow. showing, yeah, the T cells have dropped, white blood cells have dropped, and the um, the platelets have gone up, and everything is pretty well balanced now. And I say, okay, what do you want to work on today? He's like, well, not the cancer. We, we beat that. <laughs> and then we started with uh, excessive urination at night. Uh, it was like 10 bathroom visits a night. And one session in that dropped it to about two visits per night. Um, and yeah, it's a whole bunch of modalities that help to make these mental shifts occur. But the beautiful thing is when you target the mind, you can change your mind like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is stuck in a fight or flight type response, how quickly can we get them out of that? It can be sometimes instantaneous. So while the modalities seem like they take time, when the actual shifts occur, they're very quick because we're working on the mental level. Oh, wow. Okay. And so it sounds like you're also working on shifts in physical outcomes from the mental level. Yes, my background is actually in Chinese medicine, and I studied a lot, like a lot about the energy medicine model, the acupuncture meridians, the chakras, and that's all great. Yet I was saying, why is this energy so out of balance? Why does everybody seem to need an acupuncture treatment to rebalance their energy? And how is the energy blockage affecting the physical body. But once I realized, oh, this is largely mental emotional, right? We have thoughts that create negative emotions that affect our physiology and our energetic physiology or energetic anatomy. Once I started focusing on the mental level, I saw a cascading effect from the mind through the emotions, through the energy body into the physical body that mm -hmm. really laid the ground for miraculous change. So I started giving lectures all over called Healing the Mind, Healing the Body. And people would just hear those lectures and sometimes walk away changed because like literally healed because they were just like oh this problem is in my mind of course it is my doctor said it's stress but only prescribed a medication uh i heard a lecture from matthew saying my mind can overcome this and so here's a quick story i had a client who was uh he couldn't wear his dentures he had a really strong gag reflex and while i'm working oh, wow. with him yeah and we resolved that in one session but while I was working with him. His wife was in the room and he, she kept hearing me say to him, nothing outside of you can make you gag. Nothing outside of you has power over you. It is your mind that's causing this response. She kept hearing the message. Only your mind is causing the response. She called me and said, I just want to thank you. You know, my husband can wear his dentures now. It's great. We can be social. We can go out. She said, and during that session, I stopped smoking. I said, I don't even work with you. How did you just stop smoking from sitting mm -hmm. in the room? She said, I kept hearing you say over and over again, nothing outside of you has power over you. And she extrapolated that over to cigarettes and just said, yeah, these things don't make me do this. I make me do this and I don't have to do it anymore. So yeah, two people healed in one two-hour session by just making a mental shift. Now, that sounds like a really miraculous turnaround on some things that seem really conditioned. And I've been... I want to say condition, but I've been always thinking of this along the realm of, of subconscious and subconscious 
training of the mind requiring 21 days or whatever the repetition is. It sounds like you found a, a faster way to get people out of the mindsets that are causing some of these terrible ailments. Yeah, I don't know who came up with that idea that it takes 21 days to change something. It's just not true from my experience. In just five minutes of talking to you, I told you about three case histories. I can go on for like hundreds and hundreds of these case histories where the change occurred within two to 10 hours. Right? If you're stuck in a fear-based response, once I show you your subconscious mind, you're safe. You can relax. It's amazing how quickly the body can shift, how quickly the mind can shift, how quickly our behaviors can shift once that change occurs. But it does have to occur on the, on the subconscious level or else it's just largely cognitive. But when it happens in that deeper mind and the emotional, imaginative mind, then the change is actually very quick. So how does someone tap something into their subconscious? Because I know that maybe that 21-day theory comes about in sense of how you take your conscious mind and then you train your subconscious over time, kind of the habit generation, how long it takes to train yourself to brush your teeth at the same time every morning, things like that. But it sounds like there's another way to tap directly into your subconscious without going through your conscious mind. Right. Yeah. And that's what hypnotherapy is all about. So in a cognitive behavioral approach, right, we keep changing behaviors, changing behaviors. Eventually, we hope that a behavioral change repeated enough will make a subconscious change where it just becomes a new habit, a new neural pathway. But if we go directly to the subconscious, which is the part of us that motivates our behaviors, right? So let's say simply somebody smokes. They're smoking and smoking. If you try a behavioral approach to that, um, yeah, maybe you can get them to stop, but quite often within two hours, uh, I can have that person in hypnosis. So the answer to your question, like how do we get the programming in there? Uh, we need the hypnotic state, first of all, to bypass the critical part of the conscious mind, which can reject suggestions. What happens is if I say to you in your regular waking consciousness, like right now, if I say you're now sleeping better at night, Right? I can just give you that suggestion, but that can easily be rejected if it doesn't match what you already know in your subconscious memory banks. For instance, if you believe you're unlovable deep down inside, then I say, of course you're lovable. The critical part of your conscious mind will check in a millisecond with the subconscious programming and say, is that true? Are we lovable? Subconscious says, no, we're unlovable. Suggestion gets rejected. So the first step is induce the hypnotic state. The second is going to be, in very basic work here, properly worded suggestions that don't re-engage the critical mind. We need to often do a lot of repetition of suggestions. But again, that's really basic work, just putting someone into hypnosis and kind of reprogramming them. Deeper hypnotherapy work, or our style, called interpersonal hypnotherapy, goes much more to the root cause, right? So if you believe you're unlovable, well, where did that come from? Right? If you keep smoking to suppress negative emotions, where do all those emotions come from? So we don't really focus on behaviors in the deeper work or even on the emotions. We want to really look at the negative beliefs we hold in the subconscious that are causing the negative emotions, which cause the negative behaviors or the psychosomatic illness. But once you get to the belief systems, you say, oh, okay, all that low self-esteem, all those negative emotions come from beliefs like 
I'm stupid, I'm unlovable, I'm dirty, I'm disgusting, I'm powerless, I'm trapped, I'm helpless. But where do all those negative thoughts come from? Those come from your memories, which really are from your past events. And within those memories, we have relationships. So this goes back to our brand, Interpersonal Hypnotherapy, where we're actually looking at the relationships within the subconscious even more than memories, beliefs, or emotions. If you get to the very root cause of relationship, then you start to see where the real miracles can occur. And so when you talk about this very root cause of relationship, you're often talking about something that something bad that someone's had happened to them in the past, and they might not even actively been thinking about, oh, this person when I was a teenager, this person when I was growing up, this person five years ago in my adult life, but something about that relationship made them feel unworthy or in the case of some people I'm trying to reach, uh, not naturally successful, not naturally deserving of the kind of career, the kind of life, the kind of pursuits that they really want to be having and feel would make them happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if you take any symptom, whether it's a behavior or physical discomfort, psychosomatic illness, then we just say, what are the emotions underlying that? So let's say you have stress-induced headaches, right? Not mm -hmm. a physical cause. So there's headache, that's your symptom. But underneath that are going to be your emotions, right? The emotions that you call stress. But that's going to be hurt, sadness, fear, anger, grief, guilt. Where do those come from? Your belief systems. Powerless, trapped, helpless, unlovable, not good enough. Where do those come from? your memories, right? But it's going to be a relationship in those memories. Like your father, for instance, you know, dad made you feel all those things. So once you see the headache isn't a thing, it's a thought made manifest. Then we go to the deep metaphysical principle of learn to translate things into thoughts, right? Everything that's a thing started as a thought, right? A computer we had to think about to make a computer, right? You want to make a beautiful picture, it starts in your mind before you can manifest it externally. So when you get to the real root cause and you see, oh, you were five years old, your dad was screaming and yelling at you, right? Then that parent-child conflict is seen as the root cause. The parent-child conflict in the subconscious is rooted in guilt, primarily, right? The parent making the child feel bad. So therefore, what we really find is unforgiveness at the root of these physical manifestations. Therefore, the headache is not physical problem to be corrected. It's not even a negative emotion to be resolved. It's an unforgiveness. Once we see that forgiveness is the real root of mental change, then Pretty much forgiveness is the root of all healing the mind to heal the body. Um, so, yeah, I've just meditated for years on this, and I've come to the conclusion forgiveness is at the root of all mind-body healing. You talk a bit about this idea of the root of all suffering, and the root of all suffering is that this continued guilt, this non-forgiveness of ourselves, these continued beliefs that we have. On almost every level, I want to say yes to that question. If you come at it from a, like a deep religious, philosophical, metaphysical principle, Judeo-Christian model, that there's a fall, that somehow we got separated from our source. The idea of like Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden is like now they're on a long guilt trip. You did something bad, now you're on a long guilt trip. Then what do you need to resolve that? To 
forgiveness, like the idea of atonement. So we find that in religion, no matter what approach you take, you realize, oh, there's a sense of separation, and we need to get back to a sense of oneness. In A Course in Miracles, that is absolutely the model. The problem, the one problem for all suffering is separation, and the solution is oneness. But what is the means of that shift? How do we get from feeling separate to feeling one, or moving from fear to love, moving from an illusion of who we are to the truth of who we are, that mechanism is forgiveness. In analytical hypnotherapy, the root of every, essentially every problem is that parent-child conflict rooted in guilt. So if you look at it from a religious perspective, pretty much guilt. Look at it from a psychological perspective, pretty much guilt. What is the way to get people to stop hating themselves, attacking themselves, being angry at the world, like all that negativity? is really just rooted in unforgiveness. Once we make that mental shift, that's where we see real miracles occurring, where you can't believe something could change that quickly, but it's because you addressed it at the absolute very root cause of the issue. If not, you're really just treating symptoms or things in between the problem and the symptom, like memories, beliefs, emotions, energy imbalances. But if you really look at the root of all of that, one problem, separation, one solution, oneness. How do we get back there? Forgiveness. People who are living a life that they're not really inspired by, people who maybe have an idea, they're like, oh, if only I could do this, but they really feel like they're never going to do this. They're never going to have the life they want. Oftentimes it involves being stuck in a job that doesn't really inspire you or being stuck in a, some sort of lifestyle. That stuck feeling, that feeling you can't get out of this. I can't move on to something different, even though I desperately want to move on to something different. I desperately want to create a different life. All kind of originates from this idea of separation, being separated from that oneness, from that source. Although we're not really separate ever, right? You can't be separate from, like, how could a fish be separate from the ocean? The great poet Kabir, he said, I laugh when I hear the fish in the ocean is thirsty. <laughs> so mm-hmm, yeah. you're in this state of oneness now, but why in this example of somebody who's stuck, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. When we learn to translate things into thoughts, the life, the thing called your life, where you're stuck, actually the thought came first. So what comes first, the mind or the symptom? So you could say, well, my ulcer makes me angry. Well, maybe your anger causes your ulcer. My life makes me feel stuck. Maybe you believe you're stuck. So if I said to the person you were just describing, how do you feel? I'm really angry. I hate my life. I hate my situation. How does it make you feel about yourself? Oh, it makes me feel stuck and out of control. I guarantee you that person felt stuck, trapped, and out of control before they ever even knew what a career was. (laughs) Before they were 10 years old, they were feeling stuck, trapped, and out of control. So thought inevitably externalizes itself. If I keep thinking over and over again, I'll never amount to anything, nothing good's going to come my way, that's what my life will look like. It's such a simple principle, but I think people, I don't know, just we lose common sense at some point that my thoughts influence my life, my thoughts influence my body. But what's happening in my life is a direct reflection of my thoughts. So if I want to figure out what negative thinking do I have, Just look at the current situation, and really whatever's happening now is the result of past thinking, right? So really, what do we have to change? Only the past thinking, because you're really not separate from universe. You're not separate from universal 
artificial intelligence and, you know, I don't know your audience and all the words they might use, but people who yeah. believe in God, you know, you're not separate from that. Um, but why do you feel like you are? It, again, it always goes back to your mind. Is that where the NLP comes in the sense of like the way you talk to yourself, the kind of even some other concepts like what information you surround yourself with? What do you read online every day or where do you read it? What kind of people are you around? Does that all have a influence on basically what your thoughts are and then what your thoughts are leading to what result you create in your life? Yeah, well, NLP is a very vast field of study, uh, yet I like the definition, the founders, Richard Bandler, John Grinder, they said NLP is a way of thinking that leaves behind a trail of techniques. But essentially, NLP works with the structure of what's happening in your mind, where hypnotherapy works more with the content of what's in your mind. So content is, okay, what happened in your childhood? You've got all these memories, you have all these negative beliefs, negative emotions. NLP really doesn't focus on that much. It focuses more on structure, which mm -hmm. is to say, what are you doing with your mind now? So where NLP says this is a way of thinking that leaves behind a trail of techniques, the way of thinking is to model human excellence. So if someone can do something, then anybody else can do it. It's one of the NLP presuppositions. So the NLP founder studied really great minds, Milton Erickson, Virginia Satir, Fritz Perls. They said, okay, these people are excellent at what they do. How do we model what they're doing so we could duplicate that in others? That's what left behind the trail of techniques. So how you structure your mind in NLP becomes much more fluid Let's say you're afraid of spiders. If you put an image of a spider right in your face with all those eyes and the fangs yep. and the hairy legs, <laughs> well, anybody's going to feel scared. But once you realize, oh, wait, I can move that picture 20 feet away from me. I can shrink it down really small. I can move it off to the left. I can put it in a little frame and make that picture black and white. Huh. Now that spider doesn't seem to have as much influence over me. Once we realize with that simple, it's called a submodality distinction, when, or distinctions, once we learn we can change that, that structure, we realize we're empowered to respond to life the way we want to, instead of the way we appear to have been programmed, right? Neurolinguistic programming. The idea is we are already programmed hypnotherapy works to change deep subconscious programming with the content that's in there. And NLP can certainly do that because they're so hand-in-hand, -hand, NLP and hypnosis. But again, NLP will focus more on the structure of what you're doing now in your mind. Because if you keep having a problem, it means you keep repeating the same pattern over and over in the present moment. And the only place you can really make that change is in the present moment. So... I think a lot of people have heard or seen a show where someone's afraid of public speaking and someone will say, picture the entire audience is naked or the entire audience is wearing a silly hat or something like that. And you're saying that that is actually an NLP technique. You could absolutely work in NLP in that way because you have three major representational systems. The visual, what are you seeing when you stand in front of the audience? What are you hearing, including your own thoughts? And what are you feeling? And once you realize you choose what you think, you choose what you feel, and even bigger than that, you choose the life that you would live. So when you walk in front of a group, you're mm -hmm. not seeing anything in the room. NLP stands for neuro-linguistic. The neuro part, 
is the data coming in through all of your senses. You know, what are your eyes see? What are your ears hearing? The linguistic are the mental maps, the mental filters that we put on those impressions. So you mm-hmm. walk into an audience and, you know, into a big, large group of people, there's really nothing happening. It's only happening in your brain, right? You're not really aware of what's going on out there. Um, knowing that you're only responding to internal structure, your internal map of what's happening out there, you can change the map. Your subconscious doesn't know fact from fiction. So if you picture an audience that hates you, that's going to ridicule you, well, that's how your body's going to respond, you know, in a fight or flight Mm -hmm. way. But if you picture a naked audience who's actually much more vulnerable and insecure than you are, then great, you go out there. Or if you just see an audience of friends. But the point is, you can change the way you're perceiving reality because you're not actually seeing reality. So does it matter? what content you're choosing to receive. So I picture someone deciding, okay, I'm going to read this book versus I'm going to quote unquote doom scroll or some of these other areas where people oftentimes receive more negative content, or is it more about understanding the content for what it is and not being physically manifested in this negative content, understanding, okay, this is just one person writing that they think the world is falling apart because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Well, the content that appears to be outside, like I'm saying, we don't actually perceive. We perceive what's happening inside. But here's the thing. We choose how we feel about content before we actually experience the content. Then once we Mm -hmm. do, the emotion is already pre-wired. So for instance, if you say, when I pick up the newspaper, if the stock market went down today, I'm going to be mad. That Content of the newspaper has nothing to do with how you feel. Yeah. You could have said, hey, I'm a day trader and I do short sales and I like when the stock market goes down. Well, now it's stock market going down. That newspaper just made you feel thrilled. Yeah. You're the one who chooses how you feel about life. And then when that event happens, again, you've already made that decision. So if you say, yeah, if my kids, if they come home late again, I will be so pissed. Well, when your kids come home late again, you're the one who's so pissed. Or you could say, my kids come home late again. I'm going to be assertive. I'm going to lovingly sit them down. I'm going to lay some boundaries, remaining in a place of inner peace. It's your choice. So it's not the external content. It's what we're doing in our own minds. So we can't really control it. I know sometimes in my past, and some people try to control for some of those, I'm going to avoid negativity. I'm going to avoid these negative things. And there seems to be some merit for it, at least in the sense of like when you need a break from certain things. But what I'm wondering is it's not so much about avoiding all things negative. It's about if you have the right mindset before it, it won't seem as negative and it probably won't appear as much because you're not looking for that thing. Yeah. I mean, if we walk into, let's say, a movie theater and all the seats on the left have needles and it's all disgusting on the left uh the razor blades in the seats and on the right is all cushy and wonderful i mean of course we're going to sit to the right (laughs) Um, so of course you know as biological organisms we're going to move towards pleasure if we are sane however i wrote a book called peace under all circumstances because while we do have a propensity to want to move towards what's pleasurable this is a world of duality. There's yin and yang. There's up and down. Stocks go up and stocks go down. You're healthy, you're sick, you're healthy, you're sick, right? It's always up and down. So if you go to the beach and you sit there and say, okay, I like when the waves go up, but not when they go down. Well, 
what a fool, right? You're miserable half the time. I like when it's sunny, but I don't like when it rains, right? Now you're miserable every time it rains. But if you yeah. say, I'm going to be at peace, whether the waves go up or go down, I'm going to be at peace, whether I'm sitting on the left side of the theater or the right side of the theater. The truth is you can be at peace no matter what's happening, but only if you realize that power is within you. If you still think I must always be around positive things to be happy, it will never work. Right, because mm-hmm. you can't make the world always be positive, right? And, you know, so I hear people saying, "Oh, I never watch the news." I watch the news two or three times a day. I want to know what's going on out there, but does it affect me emotionally? No. But why? Because I made a choice that I'm at peace no matter what's happening. Yet I choose to be well informed. So I also want to get a little bit into your personal story. Uh, what made you decide to start on a hot education group and? you know, after everything you had done studying Chinese medicine, philosophy, and everything else about the human mind? Yeah, it's a 30-year journey there. But the short of it is when I was 19, I had a very powerful spiritual awakening where it was all oneness. It was everything we've been talking about, a direct experience of love and bliss and everything I'd ever want to feel. And that's just the Mm -hmm. short very powerful experience that led me to study religion and philosophy and then, you know, in the university and then Chinese medicine for my master's. But it wasn't quite it. Eventually I found hypnotherapy was like, yes, the mind. I want to dedicate my life to the mind. So when I was 24, 25 years old, I finished a lot of my graduate and postgraduate studies and then said, all right, well, what do I do with my life? So I went up to the woods in Colorado, actually. You may know that amazing city, uh, Crestone, Colorado. It's very spiritual place. There's all these monasteries and ashrams. It's incredible. Like 500 people live there, but there's like 30 monasteries here in this one city. I was meditating in the woods, fasting and praying and just saying, okay, spirit, you know, whatever we call that. But I was like, okay, God, what do I do with my life? Where do I go? How do I do it? And that higher wisdom voice came to me. It took four days. It said, you're going to open at the time it was called Anahat Meditation. Yeah, yeah. I went, went too bad, but it's like, hey, there's the rest of my life. I think I'm wise enough to dedicate some time to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. So yeah, I went into silence, solitude, no food, no nothing, just sit in meditation until I figure out what to do with my life. And the, my higher wisdom said, open Anahat Meditation Center. That's what it was called at the time. Uh, do it in Massachusetts and do it based on these principles. And I wrote down those life principles. And that guided my life ever since. Uh, eventually, we turned it into Anahat Education Group when we were already a state-licensed hypnotherapy school. We were at the top of a skyscraper, so we were doing really well. Mm-hmm. And I realized this isn't a meditation center anymore, like when I was in my early 20s. This has just become a really robust group of educators and professionals. And then it became Anahat Education Group. But really, we run the Institute of Interpersonal Hypnotherapy, which is a way that I get to infuse all these deep spiritual, metaphysical healing principles into an ever more legitimate profession. We keep working to raise the standards of hypnotherapy education so it can be a more respectable profession. But yeah, Anahat Education Group really is like the spiritual hub, if you will, of the work I do in the field of hypnotherapy, which gives it such much more depth than what I found in a lot of other hypnosis trainings where they're only talking about the technique. But what fuels my work, the word Anahat literally is the heart chakra. It's referring to the very essence of your being. And that goes into 
Well, a lot more. Uh, it's a very, that word Anahat is very deep dealing with sacred geometry, the glyph of the six pointed star and everything you can pull from that. So we can go really deep into that word, but that's the brief overview of a 30 year journey with all this stuff. One thing I'm also wondering is from the standpoint of when you went to Crestone and you had the four days away and it kind of came to you, what made you trust that? Because I think a lot of people have ideas or even have like things come to them but don't necessarily have that self-trust or a thing like, oh, wait, but you know, but it'll never work because X, Y, and Z oftentimes will come about. What made you actually say, okay, I wrote this down. It's going to be on a hot. It's going to be in Massachusetts. And then you actually went and did it. Yeah, I know. It seems crazy. It all started when I was 19 and I had that spiritual awakening because I didn't ask for that experience, at least not consciously. I was atheistic. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was atheistic, agnostic. I didn't believe or care about God. It just wasn't in my on my radar. But when that experience happened, it was so wonderfully benevolent. It was awe-inspiring. And I just said, I'm dedicating my whole life to this experience. So being a religion and philosophy major. I started seeing there is tremendous consistency in all the world's religious and spiritual wisdom traditions. So that built faith that, well, if all the saints and sages keep saying the same thing, there's probably some truth to that. Yet in my early studies, my first Chinese medical college, I was studying with a medical intuitive who's very psychic, very gifted, just off the charts. And he's one of the ones who first taught me how to talk to my, quote, higher self. Mm -hmm. And... He had me go into meditation. He said, ask that voice a question. He just said, ask a question, you'll receive an answer. And I said to that voice, it wasn't even a voice yet. It was just to the empty space. I said, you know, it's in deep meditation. There's no real content inside. And I said, how do I heal my girlfriend at the time of ulcerative colitis? And that voice said, she's already healed. I said, no, she's not. She's quite sick. And the voice said, she's already healed. What I've learned over the years is that if we just want to call it God for being simple about it, there is a reality. You know, I tapped into that at 19. I've learned that that reality is on our side and it will talk to us, commune with us, reveal to us if we just ask and receive. Eventually, I realized years later, that voice was right. She's already healed. I had to stop seeing her as sick, like a healed healer sees yeah. the client slash patient as already healed. One of my clients recently said, don't you see how much better I am? And I said, nope. He's like, what do you mean? I said, you were perfect when you walked in, you're perfect now. So I have learned that there is a higher, wiser mind, whether you call it oversoul, superconscious, higher self, God, divine mind, Holy Spirit, it's there. And to not tap into it is really unfortunate. People suffer so much when they only turn to their subconscious or conscious minds. But once you realize you have a superconscious mind, and that you can trust it, that it knows better than you. I think it's not just trusting it, it's distrusting my own mind. I had a teacher, he would frequently say, how many times has your mind been wrong? How many times did you perceive? <laughs> like, like, if, if your conscious mind is wrong 20 times a day, why do you keep turning to it about how to run your life? Right. So it was actually... It was actually a spiritual teacher early on who made it very clear, you cannot trust your own conscious mind, but there is divine mind. And if you turn to it, it'll make your life infinitely better. So it was really doing the experiment. It wasn't blind faith. It was, all right, let me start listening to a higher, wiser mind besides mine. 
I was meditating one morning in those early years, and that voice out of the silence said, you're going to get a speeding ticket today. I said, well, no, I'm not. Yeah, I said, no, I'm not, because you just told me that, and now I won't speed. It said, no, you won't be paying attention. You'll get a ticket. And sure enough, I'm driving the acupuncture school. I look in the rearview mirror, and there are the sirens. Pull over. I'm like, hello, I totally expected you. Um, (laughs) and, And then... Sure enough, when I reflected on it, I wasn't paying attention at that moment to the speedometer. And uh, that voice knew. So I've had enough of those experiences to realize there's something wiser than my neurotic conscious mind. And knowing that my mind is constantly wrong about things, I'm going to trust something higher. So yeah, don't trust yourself as much. Trust God tends to work out a lot better. And uh, it's kind of interesting how you know you're talking about all the different religious traditions and all the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, seem to have some sort of element of trust God and not yourself. And the same can be said of the, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, just phrased in a different way for probably for a different audience to be 100% honest. One thing I wonder is what percentage of population do you think are tapping into their higher mind? Well, we would say, I think the studies show that 95% of the population believe in God or some form of higher power, but yeah. how many are actually tapping in and living from that? I don't know that there's any statistics on it, but my experience of humanity is it's not the majority <laughs> because yeah. the world is such a reflection of egoic thinking rather than spirit thinking, right? Like, so if we just make a distinction between ego and spirit, then we have a distinction between fear and love, right? Ego is fear-based, spirit is love-based, spirit is love. So how many people in this world turn to love to motivate their behaviors? How many people follow the trust your joy, follow your bliss mindset? How many people have surrendered to divine consciousness and been lifted up to heights they couldn't have imagined? I think that's the minority, unfortunately. Yeah. So if the world is majority fear-based, majority in the ego, but someone taps into their higher self, someone adopts a, a better way of thinking, adopts trust in some of these messages that they're getting, trusting the right messages, are they able to manifest a world around them that generally doesn't reflect that fear, ego-based reality that most other people are in? Do they naturally find themselves in the right situation in places that just tap into that different level of energy? Absolutely. My experience being a religion and philosophy major, studying the great saints and sages, you ask those people for their blessings. You don't ask the guy who is in a mental institution or lying in the alley in his own feces. You don't turn to those people and say, you know, <laughs> sorry, I'm just using extreme examples. You know, you don't turn to that guy whose life is totally dysfunctional and say, oh, please bless my children. But why would you turn to a saint and say, please bless my children? Somehow we know that person has some, they're tapped into some kind of power. We all know this in some level, that if we heal our minds, we can heal our lives. But when we really learn to turn it over to higher power, again, whatever we want to call that. Um, but I, I would be remiss to not talk about it, right? Like we're talking about it because even though we want to respect atheists and agnostics, there's a reality and, you know, call it whatever you want. But when you give your life to it and let that higher mind start running the show, 
you're literally turning it over to the infinite creative power of the whole universe, as opposed to your own silly thinking, (laughs) your own fear-based egoic thinking. So yes, I have seen an incredible power to manifest whatever I want in my life. I could tell you hundreds of stories of I sat in meditation, I visualized something, I went through what I call the creating manifesting formula, uh, 12 steps I take my students through of how to manifest whatever they want in their life. And a lot of people know about this stuff now, law of attraction, the secret, you know, all those teachings are now out there. Um, but yeah, if we, when we learn to get our imagery, our emotions and our thoughts aligned with what we want, the universe tends to match that. I mean, it does match our thinking, but when you really go beyond even the conscious creating and manifesting to a deeper level of pure surrender, you don't even have to visualize positive things. If law of attraction is true, that if you vibrate at a certain level, whatever you're vibrating at it, you're going to attract like, like, like attracts like. Mm-hmm. So if you just prioritize the highest, just seek the highest spiritual levels of being, the highest way you can vibrate, more love, more peace, more joy, more bliss. You don't have to think about anything else. You will just keep attracting better people, more money, better relationships. You'll have more purpose, more mission, more direction. Things flow. All you have to do is prioritize spirituality and everything else takes care of itself. It's one of the deepest secrets. And I think like you were asking me, like, why do people not just do that? Like, we're afraid. Christ said it, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all things are added on to you. Well, why not just do that then? Why not take that risk? And heaven doesn't mean like what happens after you die in this context. It means find the peace and love and joy within yourself and then watch what happens to your life. You barely have to plan or think about anything when you just learn to meditate on that highest place within you. Everything else takes care of itself. Now, if someone is not sure if the word would be receiving messages, but if someone has thoughts, series of words slip into their brain or they appear in front of them or something like that. How would someone go about determining whether this is a higher spiritual message versus just more potentially neurotic thoughts from their ego-based self? Yeah, the idea is discernment, and we need to learn how to use discernment beyond just how we normally do. So, for instance, I can discern the difference between a microphone and a computer monitor, a water bottle versus a coffee mug. I don't necessarily apply that to spirit versus ego. So we really just want to learn to discern when is it ego, when is it spirit. When it's ego, it's usually fear-based. When it's ego, it's normally just a bunch of English, whatever your preferred language is in your head. But, you know, for us, like, I just hear English in my head, right? That monkey mind, that continual chatter. Realize that's not the voice for God right? That's not your higher, wiser mind. So if we understand what the subconscious mind is and the conscious mind, we generally can say most answers that are going to come from that for most people are ego-based. But when it comes from spirit, it speaks with unmistakable clarity and overwhelming appeal, right? That's in A Course in Miracles. It says, why would Mm. the voice of the ego seem so much louder And it's like, imagine like the cap of a pen. If you look in that little hole and you put your face right in it, well, everything seems so dark and the universe is so small and it's so limited. Well, you're just (laughs) focused on the most minuscule part of the universe. If you learn to pull back and... (laughs) Now I have to do it. Sorry. I mean, if that, yeah, if looking in the very tip of a pen is like the whole of your universe and you say, 
well, where's the sun? There's no sun. There's no ocean. There's there's no universe. Well, you're just too myopic to realize where you are and what's even happening. So it's not that the ego is louder than spirit. It's just that we're too focused on it. So first learn to discern the difference. And then when you hear the voice for spirit, again, it speaks with unmistakable clarity and overwhelming appeal. It's a voice that, and it's not even English, in conversations with God, Neil Donald Walsh was homeless, he was destitute, he starts writing a letter to God, he says, I sure as hell, and that higher voice stopped him and said, wouldn't you like to be as sure as heaven? (laughs) And and he heard this voice, and then, you know, years later, they interview him and say, what happened after all those revelations? Like, how is your life different? He said, well, I'll never have to worry about money again. What an amazing answer, right? Everybody's trying to find money. He was homeless, couldn't find money, but he found God and the money followed. Seek ye first the kingdom and all things are added on to you. So if we just learn to put our attention on that, then life becomes infinitely better. And I don't care if anybody's atheistic or agnostic. It's an experiment. Just mm-hmm. You don't have to call it God. Just learn to surrender. Learn to let go. Stop being the doer and just learn to really go with the flow. Learn to listen instead of like, we're always just talking, talking, whether it's to others or in our own head, right? Constantly talking. When we meditate, we get really quiet and we learn to listen. And when you listen, you can hear. But most people don't stop and ask. They don't actually Mm. sincerely listen. So yeah, if we're going to say you're going to hear the voice of higher wisdom, you'd want to train your mind to actually be a good listener first, because most of us are really good at talking, but not very good at listening. Yeah, what they call active listening versus people who are just waiting for their turn to talk, Mm -hmm. essentially. Uh, So Matthew, one final question now that you know, my audience has gotten to hear everything about uh, Anahat education and everything that you do, your story, where you come from, what you believe in. Uh, what would be the best way for anyone listening that uh, is interested in finding out some more information and possibly getting a hold of you? Sure. The hypnotherapy side of things with tons of free resources is instituteofhypnotherapy.com. So again, instituteofhypnotherapy.com. I also have a website called onlinemonastery.com to 100 plus hours of free meditation teachings. Oh, wow. a, and that's really the essence of Anahat Meditation Center, Anahat Education Group, is this meditation system. So totally free, it came to me in my own meditation, so I didn't have to pay for it or I don't monetize it. It came to me, it's extremely valuable, and I offer it to others. So again, that's at onlinemonastery.com. And then, yeah, in our hypnotherapy training, there are literally hundreds of free hours of training for people who are interested. Oh, thank you so much. And Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes, telling us all about how we can use some of these techniques to adopt a better mindset. Because as I kind of mentioned throughout my podcast, we all have different backgrounds. We all have different struggles. We all have different pursuits, different things we want. But the commonality amongst all of it is, is the mindset, is what mindset you're coming at it from. And if you're coming at it from the mindset uh, that, you know, you are able to do it, that these things are going to happen, well, it's much more likely to happen than if you're coming at it from that limited mindset of feeling stuck, which is a mindset that I'm perfectly aware of. Uh, I would also like to thank everyone out there listening for tuning into Actions Antidotes. Thank you for all the episodes that you've tuned into, whether this is your first episode or where you've listened to all 
72 of them so far. And uh, I would like to encourage everyone to tune in to more episodes of Actions Antidotes, where I'll be talking to more interesting people who are following their true passions, who have found their place in life or are in the process of finding their place in life, a place that really kind of resonates with them. 